Welcome into Real Pod Wednesdays. Dan Hope joined by Griffin Strom on NFL Draft Week as uh, we're just just over a day away from the NFL Draft getting started in what will certainly be another eventful draft for Ohio State, which has had at least seven players drafted for each of the last six years. And it looks very likely that streak will continue. Alabama, the only school that has had a longer streak than that in the NFL draft. And certainly the headliners for Ohio State going into this year's draft are Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson, the two wide receivers who will almost certainly be first round picks on Thursday night in Las Vegas. If so, they will become the first round one wideouts since 2007 when Ohio State also had two receivers selected in the first round, Ted Ginn and Anthony Gonzalez. We certainly don't think it'll be the last first round wide receivers for Ohio State with Jackson Smith and Jigba and some of the other talent that Brian Hartline has in that pipeline. But without a doubt, I think Thursday night is going to be a... A big night, but I think should only help Brian Hartline's future recruiting efforts, considering that Jameson Williams is probably also going to be a first round pick. Oh, yeah. Three guys there for for, for Brian Hartline. And this isn't a, as deep a class necessarily in terms of all the way through. It's not probably going to be a double digit player class as we've seen in recent years for the Buckeyes. But you got to think, you know, with two wide receivers almost certainly going in the first round. You know, it's crazy even just like with the recent success of the Ohio State wide receivers room that we you know haven't seen that happen maybe in one of these years. Um, obviously, some of those wide receivers rooms were a little, you know, those guys have gone on to have success. You think of a Terry McLaurin, think of a Michael Thomas, guys like that have had great levels of success at the NFL. But like you said, I think after this, in, in, you know, recruits seeing two wide receivers go in the first round of the draft, as we assume will happen with Olave and Wilson, you have to think that will only increase the, the efforts of Ohio State to recruit top-end talent at that position. Yeah, I have a feeling that Ohio State will be making sure that the likes of Brandon Innes and Carnell Tate, just to name a couple, are paying attention on Thursday night to where those receivers go. And yeah, you, you're right. I mean, it, it is striking to think of all the great receivers that have come out of Ohio State in recent years. That it has been 15 years since one's been selected in the first round. Certainly, if you could redo those drafts over again, Michael Thomas would be a first round pick. Terry McLaurin would be a first round pick. But I think the difference with these two guys, Olave and Wilson, is that they had the elite production at Ohio State that those guys didn't. You know, Terry McLaurin, we saw him really come on in his final year at Ohio State. I mean, he might not have even been drafted if he had come out the year before, has a great final year at Ohio State. And now he's an elite wide receiver who is trying to get a big contract this offseason and likely will. You know, Michael Thomas, you know, Ohio State fans have debated that for years about why he wasn't utilized more than he was. But these two guys, I mean, you're talking about, you know, just in the terms of what they accomplished their careers. I mean, two of the best wide receivers in Ohio State history, of course, Chris Olave breaking the touchdown record this past season, you know, one of, you know, without a doubt, one of the most impressive careers we've ever seen from an Ohio State wide receiver. And then, you know, Garrett Wilson, you know, really, you know, from the time, you know, both those guys from the time they were a true freshman, they were making an impact. And Garrett Wilson, one of those guys who, 
you know, I think it's two different stories here. I think with Olave, it's a guy who was under-recruited coming out of high school. Nobody necessarily really expected this when he first got to Ohio State. And he burst onto the scene, had a fantastic year as a true freshman, and then just kept building on top of that year after year, getting better and better to get to this point to where we're now talking about him as a likely top 20 draft pick. With Garrett Wilson, I think we all kind of expected this. When you saw the player that he was coming out of high school, you know, we knew all along Garrett Wilson had the potential to become this kind of player. And you know, everything went according to plan with, you know, his three years at Ohio State, you know, became exactly the kind of player that everybody thought he was going to be. And now we're talking about him maybe being a top 10 pick on Thursday night. Yeah, you know, it's not about whether they're going to go on Thursday, because I think we all think that, you know, that is going to be the case. But where exactly they might go and to which team they might be selected by, Dan, is more of the question when it comes to that pair of wide receivers. Garrett Wilson, as you said, the guy that's, you know, right up there, the odds would put him right on the cusp there of, you know, is he going to sneak in as a top 10 pick. I've certainly seen mock drafts that have him going below 10 as well. You know, there are a lot of um, wide receivers, obviously, in this class with Drake London, Jamison Williams as well, Malave as well. So, I mean, some mock drafts have Malave sneaking in there above Wilson, but I think, you know, the, the most think that he's, that Wilson will go first. Chris Olave, you know, the odds have him right there, 16, maybe favored to sneak in before the 16th pick, but that'll be close as well. Do you have a gut feeling, Dan, or, uh, you know, any insider inclinations, perhaps, on where you think uh, Garrett Wilson might fall and Chris Olave in terms of which team might select those guys and what the pick will end up actually being? Yeah, I can't say that I have any inside info on which team is going to select them other than just kind of reading the tea leaves out there. But I will have a mock draft on 11 Warriors that may or may not already be published by the time you're you're listening to this. I think most likely it probably will be but these are my, my predictions that I'm, I'm going to i'm going to go with garrett wilson being the first receiver off the board as the number eight overall pick to the atlanta falcons and i am going to go with chris olave being the number 11 overall pick to the washington commanders joining Terry McLaurin and Curtis Samuel. I think you just look at those two spots. I think the Falcons are a team that pretty much everybody expects to take a wide receiver. Maybe it's Garrett Wilson. Maybe it's Drake London. Maybe it's Jamison Williams. I think any of those three could go at that spot. They've been connected to Wilson all throughout the process. And, you know, in, in my mind, you know, I think he is the most complete wide receiver in this draft. And so, you know, maybe that's just because I've watched him the most, but, you know, in my mind, you know, he is the most complete prospect in this draft. And, you know, I also think it's kind of fun to think down the line and think, you know, if Garrett goes to Atlanta this year, probably not like the greatest spot to go this year. Cause I don't think Atlanta is going to be very good this year. They, they have like a $40 million cap hit on Matt Ryan this year, but they got to eat and that kind of limited their ability to really upgrade their team this year. But you think about it, if Atlanta isn't very good uh, this year, maybe they're picking near the top of the draft next year. They're probably going to be in the market for a quarterback next year. Garrett Wilson and CJ Stroud have both openly talked about how they would like to play together in the NFL. You know, best laid plans don't always happen, but you never know. They draft Garrett Wilson this year. Maybe they can pair him back up uh, with CJ Stroud a year from now. And then 
with Chris Olave, you know, again, some people have him going, you know, later in, in the teens. Some people even have him falling in the twenties, but there's been a lot of smoke that Washington really likes Olave Ron Rivera, a Washington's head coach and Martin Mayhew, Washington's GM were both at Ohio state's pro day. And uh, we saw Rivera having a long conversation with Brian Hartline. He could have just been talking about, you know, Terry McLaurin, a guy who's already on their team. They already have two Ohio state receivers on their team, Terry McLaurin and, and Curtis Samuel. But you, know, you just look at, you know, them going to a pro day. Then they brought both Olave and Wilson back to their facility for pre-draft visits there's reason to believe that Washington wants to draft a third Ohio State receiver uh, this year. And I think either one of those guys could be the, the pick there. You know, if, if Atlanta maybe takes, you know, Williams or London, and then if, you know, Garrett potentially slides out of a top 10, but I think he could land with Washington too. But I, I'm going to say that, you know, if, if, I mean, I think it's possible even if Garrett's still on the board, but Washington takes Olave. They, you know, it, it's all a matter of preference there. I'm going to say that, you know, if Wilson's off the board in the top 10, I think Washington takes Chris Olave at, at 11. And if that happens, Ohio State would have two wide receivers off the board in the top 11 picks. Yeah, that seems to be on the the kind of, you know, the optimistic side in terms of the different, you know, mock drafts and stuff I was looking at. I was thinking about, you know, Garrett Wilson at two. Atlanta number eight sounded pretty, pretty reasonable to me as well. I ended up going with, you know, just in terms of my, my feelings on things and, and tr- kind of averaging things out and whatnot, looking at the different projections, Wilson number 10 to the jets. Obviously there was, you know, talk of them acquiring some different high profile wideouts, you know, DK Metcalf and Tyreek Hill, things of that nature. And, and I've, you know, I saw other mock drafts have had the jets taking some of those other wideouts. I think somebody had, you know, them Alave going to the jets, Drake London going to the jets, things of that nature. So that seems to be a pick where, you know, New York might go wide out there. Also, I've seen a lot about Alave to the, the Saints as well at number 16, pairing him with another Buckeye wide out as you were, you know, uh, recommending for him with the uh, the Terry McLaurin and, and whatnot with the commanders. This would be Alave teaming up with Michael Thomas um, on a team that, you know, doesn't have much at wide out outside of him at the moment. You know, I, I'm no expert on that, and I certainly don't have any inside inclinations either, Dan, but. Um, th- those any of those four, I think, sound pretty reasonable right there, and are, and are pretty consistent with what I was seeing, kind of u- uniformly across a bunch of different uh, mock things that I was looking at. Yeah, I think those are both very logical destinations. You know, the Jets, another team that brought both of those guys in for pre-draft visits. So my feeling is, you know, again between them, they'd probably lean toward Wilson. But I think, again, kind of like the Falcons, they're a team that could potentially draft any of those top four receivers. And it just becomes a matter of preference. I mean, there's a lot of people out there who think J-Mo, you know, with him having a quick recovery from his torn ACL, that he could be the first receiver off the board. So if, you know, J-Mo goes to the Falcons and then, you know, maybe Wilson slides in there to the 10th pick, that wouldn't surprise me. You know, again, Drake London, another guy in that conversation. You know, I think my my feeling is I think all four of those guys are going to be gone by the middle of the first round. I think uh, the Saints uh, are, are definitely a logical landing spot there uh, for Chris Olave. If he makes it to 16, I think uh, it's very likely that they would take him. You know, I think, you know, there's a lot of potential landing spots there. You know, the Texans sitting at 13, you know, they have two first round picks. I think they would strongly consider either Wilson or Olave if there. I think the Eagles at 15 would really like a receiver. And so I think they'd strongly consider either of those guys. 
you know, if the Saints let Olave go, I think you got the Chargers sitting there at 17. They're another team that could potentially be very interested in the Southern California native bringing him back home. So, you know, my, I would be surprised. You know, I've seen some mock drafts out there that have Olave slipping to like maybe pick 22. Could happen, but I would personally be surprised. I, I don't think either of them's getting out of a top 20. And you, you were kind of right on the number there, those, those betting lines of Garrett Wilson being his over under being nine and a half, Olave being right at 16 on the Saints. You're kind of right on those numbers there. So, two very logical projections there. And uh, Chris Olavia, I believe uh, Chad Ochocinco said on Twitter today that he was his favorite wideout in this class, I believe. And so that's got to count for something, Dan, right? I mean, that's got to boost the stock a little bit. Well, if I remember correctly, Chad Ochocinco was a big Terry McLaurin fan as well. I don't remember if that was before the draft or after the draft, but I remember Chad Ochocinco being a big Terry McLaurin guy. So some similarities there, I guess the question of my projection would be, you know, are they too similar to where would you necessarily want? Uh, two of the same guy on the team or, well, Terry McLaurin's worked out so well. So, hey, if this guy's another Terry McLaurin, then heck yeah, we want two of those. I would think you'd probably lean toward the latter, but you'd be more than happy to have two Terry McLaurins on your team. And those Bengals guys between uh, Zach Taylor and Chad Ochocinco, you know, talking a lot about liking those Buckeyes in the draft. We heard it from the Bengals head coach at the coaches clinic the other day about, you know, giving the Buckeyes some extra looks and perhaps the Bengals will end up drafting one of the other Buckeyes that is not Garrett Wilson or Chris Olave as we dive in kind of deeper into this draft class for the Buckeyes, because we we believe that, you know, Nicholas Petit-Ferrer, Thayer Mumford, Jeremy Ruckert, Haskell Garrett, Tyreek Smith, all guys that are projected to be drafted, albeit in, 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 in middle rounds, maybe a couple guys going in the later rounds. Dan, who do you think is next off the board after those first two guys after after Thursday? I'm going to go Nicholas Petit-Frere in the second round. And I, I say that, you know, I've seen second round for him. I've seen third round for him. But I think because of the position he plays and because of the athletic upside he has, the length that he has, I, I think there's going to be teams that are intrigued by his potential as a left tackle. I don't know if he's necessarily a guy that NFL teams are going to view as we can plug him in and start him at left tackle right away. But I think he has that upside to where, you know, if you look at this draft, you know, there's three offensive tackles, Evan Neal and Charles Cross, who are all expected to be very high picks. There's a bit of a drop off after that. So I actually saw one article on Tuesday. I think it was written by Tom Pelissero for NFL.com that he actually included Petit Frere on his list of guys that could be potential surprise first round picks. That would surprise me if another any of these other Buckeyes went in round one, but I think round two, you know, my guess would be middle to later round two, but that would be my sweet spot for Petit Frere. I, I do think that he will go in the second round because of, you know, the premium position he plays and the upside he has. If he were to fall to round three, that wouldn't shock me, but I'm going to say that Petit Frere goes in round two. Yeah, I've seen, seen a lot of, you know, third round grades for him as well, two, two to three there. But what about, you know, potentially the next guy after that, Dan, Jeremy Ruckert, who, you know, I don't know if a lot of people would have thought that he might be going as high as, as some of the draft projections have him going. I've seen him in a lot of places as a third round projection. I think I even saw him as a, a second round projection somewhere. Maybe he goes in the, the fourth round too, kind of somewhere in those middle rounds there. Does anything about his draft grades surprise you at all being that high or, or not, Dan? No, I wouldn't say I'm surprised by him being that high. I, I actually think that 
had Ruckert not been dealing with a foot injury throughout the draft process, I thought, you know, if he went to the combine and tested well, I thought he had a really good chance to be a second round pick. Now I look at him as more likely a third round pick because he really hasn't been able to, you know, do any pre-draft workouts because he was dealing with uh, plantar fasciitis, had a, a walking boot on his foot, you know, couldn't participate in the combine or pro day. And so I think that hurt his chances of, you know, really elevating his draft stock, but I still think he's a day two guy. I think he's a top 100 guy because I think NFL teams are going to look at him and say, this is a guy who can be more productive in the NFL than he was at Ohio state. And, you know, that's because as has been discussed many times, he came from an Ohio state offense that doesn't throw the ball out of a tight ends a lot, but you just look at his physical skill set. He has the potential to be a much more productive receiver than he was at Ohio state. And he's a pretty good blocker too. So I think he's a guy that teams are going to look at in that third round range and say, you know, this is a potential steal. I think he's a guy that can come in, compete for a starting job at tight end in the NFL. You know, maybe he starts out as a backup, but I think the upside there is high where, you know, he has a chance to be a better player in the NFL than he was at Ohio state. And so because of that, you know, I do think he will be selected somewhere on day two. My guess would be the third round. I've seen a lot of people talking about the Bengals potentially uh, being interested in record there. So the, that would make a lot of sense. Right, right, right. And then another, the next guy possibly to be drafted after that, Dan, in this Ohio state class. I mean, you got to kind of feel for this player a little bit, I think, because if you remember off the heels of the 2020 season, when Thayer Munford was making his decision to return to Ohio State, at that time, the narrative surrounding him and his decision, everything was, you know, I want to come back and be the top tackle in the country and in college football and everything like that. And now you're, you kind of glance at his stock right now and the, the draft projections. I've seen a lot of fifth round grades on Thayer Munford after playing that year, obviously at guard moving inside, you know, for, for the benefit of the team. And for a guy that, you know, was looking to be a second, you know, maybe a first round pick being, you know, if, if he was going to be a, the top tackle in the country to be, you know, that far down has to be a little bit disappointing for him, I would think. Yeah, I mean, I know, you know, from talking to Thayer, you know, throughout the draft process, you know, he certainly is somebody who wanted to prove that, you know, he's better than you know, those draft projections. So I think uh, certainly, you know, if he was to fall to, you know, day three, I, I think he would be very disappointed by that. I think he is somebody who believes, you know, he is in an early round player. You know, if, if I'm being honest, I don't know the whole, you know, he could be the top tackle in this year's draft was ever really realistic. I mean, I, I just don't know that he has the, you know, athletic profile that you're looking for in terms of, you know, those top tackles, you know, those are usually guys who are, you know, really quick, really long, you know, he doesn't quite have that prototypical, you know, physical attributes that NFL teams are looking for in an offensive tackle. And so I think that was always going to limit his ceiling in terms of being that, you know, potential first round pick type of player, but he's one of the guys that I'm you know, really fascinated to see where he goes because I'm going to say that he goes in that late third round range. I wouldn't be shocked if he falls to the fourth or the fifth, but I do think the thing that teams are going to really like about him is, you know, for one, he's played four years of high level football. I mean, you have tons of tape on the guy. He's played both 
tackle and guard. I, I don't think he played as well at guard last year as he did at tackle in the past. And I think that's the concern with him is you question, is he quick enough to be an NFL tackle, but tackles probably his better position. So I think he's a little bit of a tweener there to where if you're projecting him as a starter, I, I think teams might have some questions about, okay, where exactly does he fit best? But I think the fact that he has that versatility to play both positions and has proven he can do so at a, a at least a solid level, I think that helps him in the sense of in the range he's going to get drafted in, teams are looking for guys to come in and be a backup initially and potentially eventually grow into that starting role. And because NFL teams only carry, you know, seven, eight, nine offensive linemen, they need backups who can play multiple spots. And so I think the fact that he can play both tackle and guard is going to help him. I have a hard time like pinpointing exactly where that's going to put him in the draft, but I think, you know, that I think that late third round range is realistic for him, you know, between late third round, early fourth round, that's where I see it. You know, if I'm going to miss, make my pick, I'm going to say he goes late in third round. Nice. And it might not be until around the fifth round that we see an, a defensive player selected in this Ohio state draft class, because of course, like we talked about it, it, it starts, you know, top heavy with the offensive guys with, you know, Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson, of course, but, who do you think will be the first defender selected, Dan? Obviously, there's Haskell Garrett and Tyreek Smith. Seen a lot of fifth-round draft grades on those guys as well as potentially the two last players selected in this class for the Buckeyes. Yeah, this is another interesting question because it feels like Tyreek has a little bit more momentum right now than Haskell does. But I'm still going to say Haskell just because ultimately – you got to go back to the tape. You got to go back to what we've seen from these guys on the field. And, you know, I just think you look at the last couple of years, Haskell was just more productive than Tyreek was. He made more plays than Tyreek did. And so to me, like if I was GM, you know, drafting those guys, I like Tyreek's upside. I think Tyreek has potential as, you know, a guy that could potentially be a late round steal, you know, of his physical attributes on the edge, but I like Haskell as a fourth round guy. I think Haskell is a guy that, you know, is he ever going to be an NFL star? I don't know, but I think he's a guy that you can plug in to a rotation right away. And, you know, he can help you as a guy, you know, especially on, you know, passing downs, being a, you know, interior penetrator. So I'm going to say Haskell Garrett goes in the fourth round. Gotcha. 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 And then did you already say your Tyreek Smith one? Sorry. I'm going to I'm going to go round 6 for Tyreek. And I wouldn't be shocked if he went earlier. I also wouldn't be shocked if he went later. Like I think, you know, he's somebody that, you know, I'd be surprised if he went before day 3 just because he didn't have the sack numbers at Ohio State. Then again, you know, we're talking about you know, a lot of a, a lot of a mock drafts right now think the number 1 pick is going to be Trayvon Walker and he did not have a lot of sacks at Georgia. And so, you know, at it tells you that it's not always about production when it comes to where guys get drafted. So, you know, if Tyreek were to go into fourth round, I wouldn't be shocked, but I think the later rounds are more likely just because, you know, we never saw him put up, you know, those big sack numbers, you know, have that consistent production at Ohio state. So I do think he'll get drafted based on, 
you know, his upside that he has, but I'm going to save a sixth round is where Tyreek ultimately goes. Yeah, I can't argue with you there, Dan. But of course, those are the seven guys that we think are probably going to get drafted. Those are the seven guys that you see on most NFL draft projections if you're looking at mock drafts and stuff before Thursday. But of course, there were other guys that were at Ohio State's Pro Day. There are guys that are hoping to get drafted or at least, you know, hoping to sign after the draft, hoping to you know, continue their football career in some capacity at the next level in the NFL. And, you know, among those guys, of course, Master Teague, Antoine Jackson, defensive tackle, Demario McCallit, you know, possibly wherever a team w- w- wants to, to put him because he's played every position under the sun at Ohio State. He's willing to play any position. And of course, Chris Booker, I'm sure you guys are familiar with his story already. The, the club football standout that, you know, ended up being a special teams impact maker for the Buckeyes. He is looking to make a team as well. Out of those guys, Dan, which guy do we think it might be most likely to be a surprise draftee, if any of them. You know, obviously we saw Master Teague put up some impressive numbers at Ohio State's Pro Day. You know, athletically, he's a guy that, that checks a lot of boxes and obviously passes the, the eye test when you're looking at, you know, kind of the, that next level athlete. But do you think that a guy like that can sneak in the draft or that any of those, uh, that group will end up hearing their name called? I'm not going to predict that any of them will be drafted because there hasn't been a whole lot of, smoke to suggest that any of them are likely to be drafted. But if a master Teague was to sneak into the seventh round, that wouldn't shock me because of the reasons you just said. I mean, you just look at him physically. I mean, it's a guy, he ran a a low four, four 40, you know, he's built like a Greek God and he, you know, has, you know, really explosive athleticism. And so I would not be shocked at all. If a team in the seventh round said, let's take a shot on master Teague. Let's see, uh, what he can become. I think if Master T doesn't get drafted, I think he will be picked up very quickly as an undrafted free agent because I think with his physical attributes, you know, there's definitely going to be teams that want to take a chance on him. You know, whether any of them are going to draft him, I don't know because I just don't know that he had enough production at Ohio State. He did not play that much last year. And so I think that hurts his chances of being drafted. But again, like, you know, I think like Jay Sean Cornell a couple of years ago, that was a guy who most people didn't think was going to be drafted. And he ended up sneaking in there in the seventh round. If that were to happen with a master Teague, it wouldn't shock me. I think the other three guys are definitely longer shots, but again, you know, if any of them can, you know, get a, get an undrafted free agent shot, which I think all of them will ultimately at, 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 at the least get a, you know, rookie mini camp opportunity where they can try out, and try to earn a roster spot. I think all of them will at least get that, you know, any one of them could, you know, make a team, you know, you never know what'll happen once you get a shot. And so, you know, I think all those guys, you know, will get phone calls after the draft, you know, of teams that are interested in assigning them or at least, you know, bringing them to their mini camps, but I wouldn't bet on any of them being drafted just because there doesn't really seem to be, there hasn't seemed to be a ton of momentum toward any of them being drafted. Yeah, I just when you think about those guys, right, that, that list right there with uh, Antoine Jackson, Demario McCall, and Chris Booker, talk about three guys who, if, if they did make an NFL team, I think a lot of Buckeye fans would be happy to see that just because those guys' stories have, have been so you know interesting, long, winding football careers. And to make it to that level would be you know nice to see for those former Buckeyes. But Dan, you know, a lot about the NFL draft is you know projecting the, the potential development of certain players at the next level. But who do you think is the most surefire? sure bet player that you're, you're most confident in them being, you know, a, a solid, and I want to do 
because I know you're probably going to say one of the the two first round wide receivers, but one of those guys maybe, and also outside of one of those guys as well, when you look down further in the class. Yeah. I mean, I'd feel really good about taking either of the two receivers, but you know, I'd just be shocked if Chris Olave was a bust. Like Chris Olave is a guy that you just look at the career that he's had at Ohio state. I mean, he just, he was so clutch. He delivered in so many clutch moments, just made so many plays. I mean, not just the fact that he's great on offense, but he's also great on special teams, which as a first round pick, he's probably not going to play a lot of special teams in the NFL, but you know, for, if that's something he needs to, you know, help him stick around in the league, he'd be more than capable of doing it. And so, you know, he's a guy that I've been a big believer in for a long time, that I believe is going to be a great player in the NFL. You know, I think with his athleticism, you know, his route running skill, you know, he's one of the best I've ever seen at the collegiate level of, of tracking the deep ball and making plays on it. And, you know, he's just one of those guys that, you know, throughout his career, everybody's talked about, you know, the kind of competitor he is, the kind of worker he is, you know, those things are going to translate really well to the NFL. So I think he's a guy, you know, like I think if you're betting on like upside, like maybe Garrett Wilson's the guy who's more likely to be a superstar in the NFL. But if Chris Olave doesn't have a long, solid NFL career, I, I'd be very surprised. I just think he's a guy who's going to go in. I think he's, I think whichever team drafts him is going to be very happy they did. And I think Chris Olave is going to go on uh, to have a great NFL career. Outside of those two guys, I'd go back to Jeremy Ruckert for the reasons I said before. I, I really think Jeremy Ruckert is going to be a better NFL player than he was at Ohio State because I think he is going to have more opportunities to catch pass passes in an NFL offense. And I think he was an underappreciated blocker at Ohio State. I think, you know, I think he did that well. I think, you know, if you know, hear what like NFL scouts have to say of him, a lot of NFL scouts like talk about him more as a blocker. Whereas at Ohio State, I, I feel like he was always talked about more as a receiver because I think, you know, he came in as a receiver and that was kind of always the hype around him. But I, I think a lot of the NFL teams really like what they see from him on film as a blocker. And so he's a guy that, I would feel really good about drafting in the third round. Like I said, you know, above that, you know, maybe you're taking a more of a risk. I think in the third round, if I was a team looking for a tight end, I'd feel really good about taking Jeremy Rucker thinking that I think at a minimum, I think he's going to come in and be a solid player. I think there's a chance he could be a fantastic NFL tight end. And so I would bet on Jeremy Rucker as a third round pick for sure. I just don't know how you choose between Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson, honestly. I mean, in that case, it really is almost like picking children in a sense of, you know, I just, I just don't know how you, you stack one over the other. Obviously, there's, you know, little things. And, of course, scouts can probably dissect the, the intricacies of their technique on certain routes, this, that, and the third. But when you look at those guys, I mean, I just don't see how either of those guys aren't going to be a pretty dependable, you know, wide out in the NFL, barring, you know, injuries or unforeseen this, that, and the third. But yeah, I had record down as well as my guy beyond those two that, you know, is a pretty figures to be a pretty dependable guy. I also put Nicholas Petit Frere just because, you know, when I'm reading some of his draft feedback and things, a lot of people have said like, oh, he, he needs to put on more strength, things like that. And like, I don't really doubt his ability necessarily to put on something like that. If he already has a lot of the prerequisite, you know, athletic gifts that a lot of teams are going to be looking for, you know, in a tackle. But then, 
overall thoughts on the Ohio State draft class as a whole. I think one thing that stands out to me, just in terms of the defensively, I think it speaks to the kind of the the Ohio State team that we're going to see in 2022 is that, you know, with just the two players getting potentially getting drafted there with Haskell Garrett and Tyreek Smith, I think that goes to show like how much young talent right now is on the Ohio State roster and the fact that obviously the defenses the last couple of seasons at Ohio State have been a little bit underwhelming. But I think with some of the the five-star guys that are on the Ohio State defense this season and moving forward, I think we could start to see the tide change in terms of a lot more uh, guys defensively being drafted from the Buckeyes here in a couple of years. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think, you know, you, you mentioned at the top of a show about how, you know, maybe this draft class isn't as deep as maybe some of the other Ohio State draft classes we've seen in recent years. That's somewhat of a good thing for Ohio State because it means that some of the guys who could have been in this draft aren't guys like Zach Harrison and Dewan Jones and Cam Brown. You know, if those guys were in this draft, we could be talking about Ohio State potentially having 10 picks this week. Because those guys are back, we're talking about Ohio State probably having only seven picks, but those three guys all being key players for Ohio State in 2022. And so, you know, I think this is a draft where some years you have a guy in the draft that's kind of a surprise, like, why did this guy declare when he did? You really didn't have that this year. I mean, basically, you know, all the guys who you would have thought should come back for another year did come back for another year. I mean, the only true early entrant in this class for Ohio State is Garrett Wilson, and he might be a top 10 pick. And so, you know, I think, you know, it's it's a good, solid class for Ohio State. You know, I think it's, you know, these are all guys who had, you know, good and in some cases great Ohio State careers. And now, you know, they're ready to go on to the NFL in terms of, you know, those, those seven guys that we're talking about who are likely uh, to be drafted. And then, you know, I think, the, you know, the fact that, you know, some of the guys that aren't in the class, you know, Dewan Jones, Zach Harrison, Cameron, I mean, even a, Ronnie Hickman's even a guy who could have entered the draft if he wanted to. And he came back to have those guys back for Ohio State next year, this year, I should say, is certainly a good thing. And I'm sure on next week's show, we will review what ends up happening in this weekend's draft. Of course, we, we talk about the, the current Ohio State defense. We alluded to it. There's been some departures on that front, Dan, just here in the last few days, even just you know a few hours before we started recording this podcast on Tuesday, we saw Marcus Hooker, the veteran safety for the Buckeyes, enter the transfer portal. But even before that, in, in the, the wake of the spring game, Noah Potter and Andre Turrentine both in the last couple of days, guys that had standout performances in the spring game. We've now seen those guys enter the transfer portal. We've been talking about it for a while now, the number crunch there with the scholarships for Ohio State. We were wondering, you know, a lot of guys are going to have to, you know, potentially hit the portal. And, you know, does, does the staff know what they're doing? I mean, why are they have so many, you know, more players in the scholarship limit? But as things stand, Ohio State's now down to 84, one below the scholarship limit which I'm sure will you know, potentially lead to some other speculation or, or roster developments, at least one here in the next uh, coming weeks and months. Yeah, I mean, I think we knew this would happen. It, it, it did feel a little different this year in terms of just, you know, how far they were over, you know, earlier in the offseason where it's like, okay, like, you know, how are they going to get down to this number? But certainly, you know, when Ryan Day saw this coming, I, mean, I remember asking him about it, before the start of spring and he was not concerned about getting down below 85 and you know we don't necessarily know 
how all those conversations went with the guys who entered the transfer portal over the past week. I mean, some guys may have been encouraged to leave. Some guys may have made the decision completely on their own to leave. But, you know, we knew this was going to happen in terms of guys leaving. Now, granted, when I said last week that Noah Potter and Andre Turntine were to the under-the-radar spring game standouts, I did not know if they would both be in the transfer portal less than a week later. So that, you know, that that was funny how that, that worked out. I, I uh, wasn't necessarily trying to push them to the transfer portal or anything. I was just trying to highlight, you know, the fact that they played well when they aren't guys who have been talked about a lot. That probably speaks a little bit to why they're both in the transfer portal. You know, we were asked by Minbuck about you know, what we make of them transferring after playing as much as they did in the spring game and looking good. Is that a, a coincidence, a unfortunate al- allocation of playing time in retrospect, or a conscious effort by the coaches to help them land elsewhere? And, you know, to I'll say to answer that question specifically first, I mean, I think for turn time, it was simply the matter of they had six available safeties for the game. And so I, I, I don't think there was the, I think the only reason he played as much as he did was because Josh Proctor was only going to play when they were fudding and they didn't have anybody else to go in there and play that bandit spot. So that's why he played as much as he did because they just didn't really have anybody else. And so, you know, I think that one was pretty simple. You know, I think with, you know, you know, Noah Potter, I don't know, you know, I got the vibe there from, you know, talking to someone close to Noah that, you know, they did not see this, happening that this was not something that had been planned for a long time that you know him leaving that you know i think they were you know certainly hoping that noah uh, was gonna have a chance to earn a spot in the defensive line rotation this year and you know obviously they ultimately came to the conclusion uh that that wasn't going to happen coming out of the spring and so now you know, he's in the portal looking to play somewhere else. And I think, you know, that's very, re- I think that's the reality for both of these guys. You know, I did my depth chart projection for 11 Warriors last week, and I had Andre Turrentine as a, a third string safety, and I had Noah Potter as a fourth string defensive end. And I think we saw in the spring game, these are guys who are capable of contributing to a defense this year, but it probably wasn't going to be Ohio State's. And so I think, you know, in this case for both of those guys, it's just a matter of, you know, going somewhere else now and trying to get some playing time. And that spring game tape is going to help them. I don't really think that there was necessarily a uh, conscious effort by the coaches to help them land elsewhere. I mean, I also don't think there would have necessarily been a conscious effort, you know, not to play them, you know, so I, you know, I don't know what I would say it's, you know, an unfortunate allocation of playing time in, in retrospect. I, I think this is just the reality of college football now. And I mean, we've talked about it so many times. I don't want to beat the point to death, but like, you know, and I, I think most, it seems like most fans have understand this now that it's like, you can't overreact to transfers anymore. Like it's just part of the game. Again, this is why Ohio state had, you know, 93 guys a couple of months ago, because they saw this coming. They knew this was going to happen. And I think especially on the defensive side of the ball, it's not surprising to see this happening because you have a new coaching staff and, you know, the new coaches, they're not going to be loyal necessarily 
to the veteran guys that maybe the position coaches who recruited them were. And so I think you have new coaches come in, they identify the talent. And I think you look at all these guys who have entered the portal on the defensive side of the ball, you know, all of those guys were going to be backups. They are all guys who had been passed by younger players at their position groups. And so that's why they're all in the portal. You know, I don't, you know, I don't really think there's anybody who's entered the portal yet. And now there could still be more guys in the portal. Sunday is the deadline for players to transfer and still play this year. So I think by the time we're doing next week's show, I think we should have a pretty good handle on at least who's going to enter the transfer portal. You know, certainly the possibility that Ohio State could still add players from the portal. You know, there's no deadline on that. And so that could, you know, still unfold over the course of the summer. But I think, you know, by the end of this week, we're going to, you know, pretty much know, you know, who's going to enter the portal for Ohio State if that happens. But, you know, I don't think any of these are, you know, really surprising. I mean, I think, you know, someone like a Marcus Hooker, you know, the, the writing was on the wall there. I mean, he's a guy who went from starting two years ago to barely playing at all last year. And I, I know, I think he was hurt this spring, but it didn't seem like he was a guy who was going to be in line to, to play much at all this year either. And so, you know, I, I don't think any of these have come as, as big surprises. Uh, you know, I think, you know, at this point now, they're probably hoping that not many more players enter the portal because, then you could end up in a situation where you're below 85 unless you've got your eye on a few transfers. But, you know, I don't think any of these are shocking. And, you know, we'll see if anybody else joins the list before Sunday. Yeah, and you already said that, you know, we don't actually know how these conversations go, you know, whether it's the player, especially with the the question that Minbuck asked, which is, you know, how much are the coaches involved in trying to you know, kind of force these guys out or is it their decision that seeing that they played well in the spring game and wanting more playing time elsewhere, but there certainly is a narrative now. And especially like you said, with the, the overhaul and defensive coaching staff that, you know, Jim Knowles is going in the room and, and kind of, you know, clean, cleaning some things out and, and wanting to, to change the, the defensive personnel a little bit. Obviously we don't actually know how much of that is him directly being responsible for any of that, but it is kind of an interesting thing to see a lot of these guys from the defense being the ones hopping into the transfer portal here recently, Dan? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a little bit of truth to that, but I also think that this is the new reality in in college football. And I think, you know, everybody needs to get used to that transfer movement is going to happen every single year. And it doesn't mean, you know, if 40 guys enter the transfer portal, then you probably have a problem. But, you know, I think, you know, losing – you know, eight to 10 guys a year in the transfer portal. I think that's probably going to be the new normal, especially at a program like Ohio state, because the kind of talent you're recruiting, you know, guys, those guys aren't going to want to sit on a bench for four or five years. They're going to want to go play. And the thing that Ohio state players, they have an advantage over players from a lot of other schools. And that if you're a player at, you know, maybe a smaller school and you transfer, you know, there's no guarantee that another division one school is going to want you. Whereas I think the vast majority of guys from Ohio state, you know, because they were highly recruited guys there, there's going to be other teams that want them. Like, yeah, I think legend Cavazos, Pete Thamel reported that he was contacted by more than 55 schools. I mean, he barely played at Ohio state 
and he was contacted by more than 55 schools. So, you know, these guys are you know going to have opportunities. I mean, you know, Bryson Shaw ended up at USC, seven banks ended up at LSU. So these guys are going to have opportunities if they transfer. And so I think this is just part of a new reality of college football. And, you know, I've praised Ryan day before, I think he's done a good job of, you know, limiting attrition in his program. But I think the reality is, I mean, for one, again, like, I don't think any of these departures have really come as a shock. And so, you know, I don't think there's any reason to overanalyze any of this and look at like, Oh my God, why are all these players leaving? Because I think some of it was by design. I mean, they had to get under 85. And so some guys were going to have to leave. I'm I'm not saying that they wanted all of these guys to leave. I'm sure that uh, they would have let, you know, a guy like an Andre Turrentine who, you know, played well in the spring game as a redshirt freshman. I think that's certainly a guy that you'd like to keep around, but at the same time, you know, you know, these things were going to happen. Most of these guys who entered the portal probably weren't likely to ever play major roles that they stayed at Ohio state. And so, I think for most of those guys, it's a smart decision to, you know, go somewhere else where they'll have a chance to go play more. And I think Ohio state is going to survive these losses. And I think going forward, we're going to continue to see what we saw this year where Ohio state is going to try to have, you know, 90 plus guys on scholarship going into spring practice, knowing that they're probably going to lose guys after spring practice. Rick Rocket wants to know, he's got kind of a, a discerning question here, which is that, you know, is it time for us to discuss raising the scholarship limit on varsity sports? Like, you know, obviously major college football here because of some of the issues we're talking about here with, you know, the volatility of the transfer portal. Also the extra year of eligibility is still hanging over in a lot of cases with players, as well as, you know, a lot of players declaring for the NFL and NBA drafts early. Should there be a changes made to some of the, the limits, Dan, do you think? I think it's a fair question. I think the reality is not Ohio State, but I think there's a lot of schools out there who probably don't want the scholarship limit to increase because more scholarships means more money. And so I think Ohio State would love it if they told them we could have 100 guys on scholarship. I'm not sure Kent State would love it. So I think that's the biggest reason why I don't, anticipate that it will increase you know i think you just look at this year like it would have seemed like an obvious thing to not have those guys with the covid year you know the guys who are back for that extra year of eligibility like a jaron cage or a noah ruggles it would have made sense for those guys not to count against the scholarship limit like they didn't a year ago but my understanding is schools voted against that. They didn't want that because they didn't want to have to pay for those extra scholarships. And so I think that's why, uh, you know, as of right now, the scholarship limit has stayed at 85. Now, you know, if you think of a future in college football where maybe, you know, the power five breaks away from the rest of, you know, the NCAA and kind of does their own thing, then at that point, maybe you, you would see the scholarship limits increase. But I, I think as it stands right now, I, I don't think it's likely to increase. I, I think it's a fair conversation. I, I also think, I mean, the COVID thing, it, it, it's a, 
that's a limited time thing. So, you know, to me, it would have been logical to just not count those guys for COVID year until you get through all that. Just get make it just like last year, make it so those guys don't count against your 85. And I think if you would have done that, you know, I think that would have made sense. You know, I think, you know, in terms of, you know, volatility from a transfer portal, I mean, I think it's more likely that teams like Ohio State are going to be under 85 than over 85, just like we've just seen in this past week here where, you know, I think those bigger schools are going to be more likely to, to lose guys then they are going to have guys that they're actually going to be bringing in at this time of year. And so I don't know that it needs to be higher than 85. I mean, I think if it was higher than 85, you could just end up having more transfers at the end of the day, because you're going to have more guys on the roster who there isn't playing time for. And so I think 85 is a pretty good number, you know, but I think the biggest thing that keeps that from actually increasing is the fact that a lot of schools probably don't want to have to actually pay for more than 85 scholarships. Dan, volatility in the transfer portal is not exclusive to football, as I'm sure you're aware, because on the hoops side of things for Ohio State, there certainly has been plenty of roster volatility in general this offseason with the comings and goings. Just recently here, we've seen Michi Johnson transfer out of the program, Justin Arns, as well, transferring out. Ohio State just got its second transfer portal edition of the offseason on Sunday with West Virginia guard, former West Virginia guard, Sean McNeil being the latest addition to the program, which is an interesting development specifically because on Saturday, Nigel Pack, the, the former Kansas State guard who we talked about several times on this podcast, was set to make his decision. It seemed like he was pretty much down to Ohio State, Purdue, and Miami. Ohio State was the last place that that Pack actually visited, which, you know, always seems like something of a good thing in that type of scenario. You know, there, there was some rumors about, you know, maybe things were signed, sealed, and delivered with. So Pack ends up picking Miami, of course, over Purdue and Ohio State, which, you know, seemed to mean that Ohio State still had a big need at that point guard position because, of course, with Johnson out, obviously Jamari Wheeler, Jimmy Sotos, Cedric Russell, who could play some point guard for the Buckeyes this past season as well. All those guys leaving. They still needed a guard through the transfer portal. They end up getting a guard, not necessarily a conventional you know, floor general point guard, more, played more of the two at West Virginia. Sean McNeil, he can score the ball, the score the ball 12.2 points per game, close to somewhat close to 40% from the three-point line. I think we're going to see him playing more of the point for Ohio State than he did for West Virginia next season just because of Ohio State's roster outlook with Bruce Thornton being the only kind of traditional point guard it would seem on the roster right now. But of course, with Malachi Branham and Harrison Hookfin both you know, seeming unlikely to coming back for Ohio State, there's, there still is an, one more uh, scholarship spot open for the Buckeyes, which they will probably look to use on something like a, a bigger player uh, to add some more size to the front court, given the loss of, you know, Kyle Young, EJ Liddell and players like that. Yeah. You mentioned, you know, them, you know, not getting Nigel pack and then, you know, getting a commitment from Sean McNeil the next day. I mean, do you think that, you know, they took a commitment from McNeil after they didn't get the commitment from pack? 
Yeah, I'm not 100 sure of that. I'm sure they, you know, had the jump on where Pack was going to go with his decision, you know, prior to everyone else finding out, of course. But McNeil, he was coming in for the visit that that same weekend that Pack was, you know, announcing his decision. It could definitely be the case that. You know, once once they found that out, they definitely wanted to bring Sean McNeil in, who has Ohio ties as well, a guy that they seem to think would fit in well with the program. They seem to like the fit. And so it seems like they're not going to go back in the portal and necessarily look for another point guard type. I know a lot of people have been saying on Twitter and tagging me on things that Ohio State needs to bring in a straight up, you know, big guy or center, things like that. I'm not sure if they'll go with a, a straight up, you know, big seven foot center type if it'll be more of a you know, somewhat versatile power forward type, but it seems like size is definitely the direction they're going after the addition of McNeil. Yeah, most likely one more roster spot available for Ohio State. I believe shortly after this post that Malachi Branham will be having a press conference at Ohio State on Wednesday. So perhaps he'll surprise us then and announce that he's coming back to Ohio State for another year. But that would, I think, surprise both of us. I think we both think that it's more likely that uh, Malachi Branham will be announcing that he is going pro and that he will not be back next year, which would leave one more spot. And, you know, as uh, you've heard, that spot will most likely be used to bolster the front court, which makes sense. Although I do remain skeptical about the point guard situation because right now the only true point guard on the roster for next year would be Bruce Fortin. Like you said, Sean McNeil, you know, will presumably end up playing a lot of point guard, you know, but they're going to need someone else too. And he's probably capable of that. You know, maybe even a justice suing could be in that role sometimes, even though he's a bigger guy. I know, you know, that was the plan going into, you know, last year that he might play that role a little bit before he got hurt. And so there are some different things they can do, but it, it does feel to me like, man, there's going to be a lot of weight on Bruce Fortin right away coming in as a freshman, given that he might really be the only true point guard on the roster. I have heard some things from some folks that think that, you know, just assuming can play a little point guard. We saw him do that in the 2020-21 the season when CJ Walker was out with his hand injury. It seemed like Holtman wanted that to him to kind of reprise that role a little bit this year as an offensive playmaker and facilitator with the ball in his hand late in games. So I think they're kind of banking on the fact that maybe suing can play a little point and that Tanner Holden, who is, you know, a long two and a wing at, uh, six, six, and a guy that rebounded the ball a lot as well at Wright State, like seven over seven rebounds a game. I think they think that he can handle the ball a little bit as well in the perimeter. So I think between Thornton and kind of those three guys there that I just mentioned, that it might be a little bit of a by committee approach at that point guard spot. And yeah, I mean, I, I tend to agree with you on the fact that it is a little, it does seem a little bit strange to have the one true point guard team being this true freshman. But if Bruce Thornton pans out the way a lot of people think he might, then maybe it won't be an issue at all by the time the season comes around. We thought that, you know, potentially another spot would open up with Seth Towns, but he announced, I think it was Friday, that he is returning for a seventh year of college basketball, which to me, that could be a good thing for Ohio State or it could be a not so good thing. And really, that completely comes down to his health. But I mean, if Seth Towns can return to, 
you know, being the kind of player he once was, he's certainly a guy that can help Ohio State. He has that skill set. You know, I think certainly just bringing back his, you know, veteran leadership can be a positive for Ohio State. There is some uncertainty there. I mean, and, and, you know, we talked about Justice Suing too. I mean, there's some uncertainty there with his health history. So to me, I, I just think you look at next the roster going into next season. If you have those two guys taking up two of your 13 scholarships, they you need them to be healthy. Like they they need to be out there on the floor because I, I just don't think there's going to be enough veteran depth on this team to you know withstand not having those guys out there more regularly. Whereas you know maybe this past year, you know I, you know of having the two extra scholarship players, you know n- not having those guys all year. I don't you know I don't really think that was a huge reason why. You know, maybe Ohio State fell a little short of its goals, but I think this upcoming year, they're really going to need both of those guys to be available and make an impact. Oh, I agree. And the thing with Towns is kind of interesting because, you know, the knees have been his Achilles heel the last, you know, many years, but actually this past year was the herniated disc in his back that he had the surgery on. And everything we've heard about his health is that his knees are actually as good as they've ever felt, supposedly. So I wonder if that'll make a difference in how he looks, if he is able to, you know, get back in condition and playing shape and everything like that ahead of next season, if he doesn't run into any other issues, because I think it was pretty evident, especially when you watched his Harvard film compared to the player he was in that season at Ohio State two seasons ago, the year before last, I should say, was that he didn't have the same type of mobility, right? He didn't really have the same first step. Uh, his defensive capabilities and just, you know, generally moving around. He wasn't the off the dribble, you know, offensive playmaker either that I saw, you know, at Harvard when watching some of the, that film, you know, he was more of a, a guy that's going to be in a triple threat on offense, you know, a, a two dribble type of guy, maybe on offense. I'm curious to see if if that can kind of improve if his knees return to the type of health that, that I know Chris Holman and, and the Buckeye coaching staff have said that, you know, he's at. You were at the EYBL in Indianapolis over the weekend. Did you learn anything interesting? Yeah, I mean, I had never been to been into an event like that before. So, of course, you know, it was interesting going in general, going to a big, you know, national AU tournament like that. Bronny James was there with a like a massive a massive bodyguard, like face guarding him the entire time. Andy was behind like a I won't say like a velvet barrier or whatever, but one of those like elastic you know, line barrier things. That so was you were not going to get to interview him. No, I don't think I was going to make it through the, the security on that one. But uh, he, when he was there on, on Saturday, it definitely drew a big crowd. So much so that I got parked into the parking lot for five hours. So that's, that's, that's neither, neither here nor there. I was really there to mostly all Ohio red, the, the 17 and under team, which of course features the first commit in Ohio state's class of 2023, George Washington, the third, I believe he's somewhere in the range of a, a top 50 player in that class, four-star guy. He had a couple really nice uh, scoring performances, 20 plus points for all Ohio red. The, the team started out really good. They won their first two games and looked pretty good. Kind of tapered off there at the end though, lost their last two, but obviously besides Washington, there's several, you know, big time targets there for Ohio state in that 2023 class, Devin Royal, you know, a six, 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 seven small forward, but really if you watch his game, he's a very versatile guy. He can, you know, post up. He's kind of a bully inside. He was dunking all over the place in a couple of those games. And, and that team just steals so many balls and he just gets out in transition. Dalen Swain as well from Afrocentric. 
here in Columbus, just his body type, you know, just screams super athletic, versatile wing of the future. He can play guard, but he didn't have the, the greatest offensive tournament. I don't think that he was capable of, but just still his ability to steal the ball. I think he still leads all the, the EYBL and and steals per game. Also, Laurent Rice, another guy from, from Dayton there. I know he has an Ohio State offer, but he might be a little less likely to end up at Ohio State just because they already have Washington. Aside from those guys, though, in the 2025 class, there's a Canton native named Darren Peterson, who I think a, a day before the tournament started, ESPN put out its rankings of the top 25 players in the 2025 class. He was number four on that entire list. I went over to go see him play at like 10 at night on that, that Friday night. I was there at a middle school there around in, in, in Indianapolis area. He had 31 points in his game. Uh, I think the team only scored like 66. So uh, a pretty impressive performance there by him. Also in the, the 2024 class, there was a Tyler McKinley from Cincinnati. I don't know if he even has an Ohio State offer at the moment, but I think he's been on a couple unofficial visits, perhaps. He led the entire under 16 tournament in, in general in scoring. He averaged like 24.8 points per game. I didn't get to see him play that much just because there were so many other guys to watch. A couple other guys as well. Scotty Middleton for Brad Beal Elite just put Ohio State in his top five. Got to watch him play a little bit. So yeah, I thought it was I thought it was fun in general. Got to interview a lot of guys. We got to talk to Malachi Branham and Kalen Etzler as well, who we hadn't actually you know gotten to interview since basketball media day back whenever that was November this past year. So it was fun seeing those guys. Of course, uh, Jake Diebler and, and Mike Nettie were both in attendance. Saw those guys. John Shire, Tom Izzo were all there. Matt Painter. So it was it was an interesting event, although it wasn't fun being parked in five different ways in a construction lot. But I survived and got back in time. Couple of quick basketball questions from Vashukster before we get out of here. He said, "What do you guys think needs to happen, whether it be another portal ad, freshmen stepping up, etc., for the Ohio State basketball team to get over the hump this year?" and I would say both of those things, all of that. I mean, I think they do need another quality addition from the portal. I mean, I think they've gotten two quality additions. I think, you know, Tanner Holden and Sean McNeil are two guys who uh, both have a lot of scoring ability. And so I think, you know, those guys are going to add some much needed scoring to make up for the losses of EJ Liddell and Malachi Branham. But I still think they need another, you know, really quality player here. It sounds like that'll probably be somewhere in the front court, which makes sense because, you know, they don't have a ton of, you know, bigs. You know, I think if they could get a guy who's more like a power forward type to, you know, replace EJ Liddell, I would think that would make a lot of sense. But I I think they do need another high quality portal addition because, again, I mean, you look at the roster right now, they've got, you know, Half the roster for next year is freshmen, including Kalen Etzler as a redshirt freshman who has not played. So I think they need another quality veteran, somebody who can come in and either start or play significant minutes off the bench. Uh, I've, I think that's going to be important. And then, yeah, they need the freshmen to step up. I mean, they're going to need at least two or three of those guys, I think, to play major roles. I mean, Bruce Fortin is the obvious choice. Bryce Sensabaugh. Roddy Gale, Felix Akpara. I mean, those are all guys who I think were, you know, I don't know if top 60 or whatever the numbers are, but those are all guys who uh, have the talent to come in and contribute right away. And I think 
Ohio State needs a few of those guys to do that. I think, you know, if they can round this thing out strong with the transfer portal, if, you know, Justice Suing can, to Seth Towns can stay healthy, if you can get a few of those freshmen going well, then, you know, the Shookster made the point that, you know, the roster, you know, could be, you know, more balanced, more talented than we had the last two years. I'm not going to say more talented because you're losing two first round picks. So I, I, I can't get on board personally with, you know, more talent next year because you lose an EJ Liddell and Malachi Branham. I, I can't get on board with that. But in terms of more balance, I think that could be true, but I think it is contingent on those ifs that we're talking about. You know, I think it's contingent on you need those transfer guys to come in and be able to contribute you need those freshman guys to be able to come in and contribute. And you need guys like Towns and Suing to actually be on the floor this year. So it's just a lot of ifs. You know, I think that's really my concern about the Ohio State basketball team right now is it's not that they don't have the pieces. It's just that they need a lot of things to go right. Yeah, 100%. And I think anytime you're looking at transfer portal guys, you look at what they did before, but it, that doesn't mean that's it's going to transfer over exactly. You never know how the, the fit's going to work. I mean, I think we saw that this year with a guy like Cedric Russell. Again, we've talked about it before. Ha- showed flashes, but overall, can anybody say that wasn't a bit of a, a disappointment in the way that he ended up panning out for Ohio State? So you, we're going to have to wait and see, I think. Honestly, can Tanner Holden be a legitimate like double-digit point-per-game scorer for Ohio State? I think, that's a, I think that's a big storyline. And then, like you said, the freshman as well. And I, I look at Bruce Thornton, he's going to have to, you know, handle a lot of responsibility. I think Felix Akpara as well, just because with the big man situation, at least as it stands right now, it could definitely change with the final transfer portal addition that we were expecting. But I mean, next to Zed Key, who's again, that six, eight kind of center. Felix Akpara is a guy who is more athletic than Zed Key, right? He, I mean, Zed Key in some of those games against you know, different type of matchups. He's a guy that didn't play very much or, or got in foul trouble very quickly. That's why I think it's important that they have a little more flexibility and depth with the those big men there. And I think Felix Park could be a big part of that. Now, Ohio State will have to see if he's able to actually come in and contribute in that manner right away. And those are the, the factors we're talking about in seeing, you know, if the team can measure up to last year or, you know, surpass it, or if it'll be, you know, kind of the same type of deal. And the Shookster also asked us, what do you guys think is a fair expectation slash standard for this program in the NIL era, making the point that Ohio State, I mean, if you believe what's out there, it seemed like Ohio State was essentially outbid for Nigel Pack, not by Ohio State, you know, directly offered money, but by NIL collectives offering money. And I mean, Nigel Pack's commitment was literally announced by a Miami booster who announced that he was getting an $800,000 NIL deal. And so uh, I think it's absolutely fair to say that that one did come down to NIL. Uh, NIL was a big factor in that. And, you know, I, I will say that, you know, I was just talking to Brian Schottenstein from the foundation the other night. And, and he told me that, you know, they did make a deal with Tanner Holden. You know, they have announced a deal with Tanner Holden. So that is a reason why Tanner Holden is at Ohio State because he got an NIL deal. And so Ohio State does have those things in place right now to help attract transfers to Ohio State. You know, I I think if we were going to really talk about, you know, all the ramifications of that and what that might look like long term, that might be a whole episode. 
<laughs> so maybe we'll talk about that a little bit more uh, later in the off season. But, you know, I would say those mechanisms are out there. I, I, I wouldn't say that I think my expectations for Ohio State basketball in the NIL era are any different than they were beforehand. You know, I think, you know, the Shookster made the point that, you know, there might not be as much NIL money for basketball as there is at football at Ohio State, which I think is true. But I don't, you know, necessarily think that NIL is going to, you know, change things substantially one way or the other for Ohio State. I mean, yeah, there might be more NIL money for basketball players in Kentucky and Kansas, but they were probably going to beat Ohio State for a transfer or a five-star recruit anyway. And so I don't know that it really changes a lot on that front. I mean, I think, you know, NIL opportunities are going to be there at Ohio State where, you know, I don't really think that should deter anybody from coming to Ohio State. But, you know, I think, you know, probably, you know, those programs that are, you know, the real, you know, powers in basketball that have massive basketball fan bases. I mean, yeah, they're probably going to have an advantage in this area, but I, I think they already did. Yeah, I can't even begin to, to get into it. I mean, I, I think the, the question is more the, the expectation for, you know, what, what Ohio State will be able to do, you know, on the court maybe or who they'll be able to bring in. But in terms of like numbers on what like these offers should be or what makes sense in terms of an offer, I have no idea because, I mean, even the 800K sounds you know, a, a little outlandish to me, but I mean, I'm not going to stand opposed to a player making that type of money for sure. I mean, if, if that's what you can get, I, but it, it still just seems, you know, I, we've talked about this too. Like it, it all seems very strange right now. And I, I think I even saw like a, a Jeff Goodman tweet earlier saying that he was talking to a college coach that said, nobody knows what, what you can and can't do right now. And that everybody's unsure about the rules, even the people that are working a lot more directly with the actual policies than, you know, of course we are. Yeah, it's wild times in college sports. And like I said, we I think we could spend a lot more time talking about this in the offseason and, and maybe we will, but we're out of time for today. So thank you for listening in. I hope you all enjoy the NFL draft this week. If, if you're like me and somebody who actually enjoys watching the NFL draft, then I hope you all enjoy that and hope you all enjoyed listening to this podcast. And we'll be back uh, next week to wrap that all up and anything else that might happen in this last week before the transfer deadline, which probably for the last couple of weeks or any indication will probably bring more news along with it. So we'll be back next week to wrap all that up and we hope you'll join us again then.